we're also not harming. And that really does come back. I know it's not the same as something like calories in, calories out, or, or something that you can measure in a laboratory. And yet there is such a lightness that happens when you decide, even a day at a time, I'm not going to kill anybody today. Your whole life changes, your body changes. It's pretty spectacular. That was Victoria Moran, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Greetings from Carlsbad, California. I'm Jess. I'm your host, and every week on the YTP, we bring you the stories and lives of people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. Yep, purpose. We're all here for one, and it's only up to us, you, me, the other person over there, to find out what our unique purpose is. And it's not just one thing. It's not just like a one and done. Finding purpose in life is this multi-layered, moment-to-moment, multifaceted flower that is always in bloom. And what we've learned over these last eight months since launching the first episode of the YTP is that this podcast is a part of our purpose right now. And we're going to keep it going as long as we can. And your support is so vital to this show. Keep your ears peeled because in the coming weeks, we'll be launching our brand new website, which is totally awesome. Thank you, BJ, our design dynamo. And it's going to have more ways for you guys to support the show. And through that, through that, you guys, we are collectively, do you realize what we're doing? Like we are collectively supporting the health and wellness of the people, the planet, and the animals. And you guys are helping us with this. And one way that you can support the show today for free is to let all your Android peeps know that we are now on Google Play. So let's get them plugged in for some purposeful listening because they have 34 shows to catch up on. Seriously, you guys, we are in deep thanks to each one of you who reaches out, shares the show, contributes questions to be addressed, and takes the time to leave an iTunes review. We are in such deep thanks to you and to all the amazing people who have taken a chance on us and said yes to the YTP when we ask for an interview. And today's guest is one of those beautiful people. Victoria Moran is a best-selling author with book number 13 in the works and set for release in early 2018. A vegan for over 30 years and currently the reigning title holder of PETA's sexiest vegans over 50, Victoria, like so many, struggled with her weight, food addiction, and binge eating for decades. Victoria opens up about being the fat kid of parents who were both in the weight loss industry and the profound influence in her life that introduced her to the vegetarian lifestyle. Victoria is most notably known for her iconic book, Main Street Vegan, everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in the real world an almost 400-page book that reads like a gentle breeze despite its educating subject matter and insight into the world of non-veganism. It's 40 short chapters, each concluded with a delicious vegan recipe that you don't have to hold a culinary degree to create. 
should be considered the Bible for people who are just embarking on this lifestyle. But also, people who have been living as vegans for years. I just finished chapter 32 last night, Walk the Walk, and I have more pages ticked and marked in this book than any of my spirituality books. There is so much gold in these pages. A blessed book is the way that Victoria describes Main Street Vegan, not only because she feels that writing this book is the reason why she is on this earth, but because of all the ideas and opportunities that came rushing in after the title was confirmed, which, by the way, is in thanks to one particular vegan miracle that occurred on the streets of New York City involving Michael Moore. We go into this serendipitous story during our conversation, but to get back to the blessing of Main Street Vegan, one of those beautiful ideas was Main Street Vegan Academy, where after a five-day intensive, the attendees surface as certified vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. We go into depth on this program, and it is full spectrum. It's a professional development program that allows its participants to step out into the world completely ready to make their next step. And the love and passion and excitement that you will hear in Victoria's voice as she describes her academy is a direct line to its meaningful content and effective training methods. We chat about so much in this podcast. Truly, it's great insight into a Main Street vegan life. We chat about the farce around humane meat and the leakage of pharmaceuticals into animal food, what it means to live harmlessly, and the importance of always looking for our own inconsistencies. Victoria addresses with knowledge and grace all of the commonly asked questions about protein, calcium, and iron. And we chat about the always engaging subject of anti-aging, and she shares an astounding scientific finding on this topic that we at Yogi Triathlete love. Okay, so we caught up with Victoria in New York City last August during our Ride the High Vibe tour, and you're going to hear some of the city's music in the background from time to time, but there is no way I am editing out those horns or sirens because I have to say I love New York City interviews. I'm thinking I need to travel there at least once a year to that city that never sleeps so we can capture and share more inspiring warriors who, like Victoria, are living their purpose. But remember, everyone, you guys, remember, it's not just in New York City. Purposeful living is everywhere, and it's available to all of us. It's available right now, and it's the reason why we are here. So without further ado, let's get on with our enchanted conversation with the lovely Victoria Moran. So you are the author of many books. You're in the double digits, 12 books. Is that correct? Yeah, working on number 13, actually. You are. Yes, I'm working on um, a cookbook with J.L. Fields, uh, who's another author and a blogger, J.L. Goes Vegan. And it's going to be called A Coach in Your Kitchen, The Complete Main Street Vegan Academy Cookbook and Lifestyle Guide. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's due fairly soon, and then the publisher is going to hold on to it for a while. Publishing is a very interesting industry and gets more interesting all the time time, but it'll be out in, in January of 2018. So that's happening. And then who knows what's next? I'm, I'm in love with the book business, always have been. It's a very different 
situation than it was when I started back in the 80s, but people are still reading and it's still a very important part of this movement. Yeah, for me, I really love to have that book in my hands. And I know you can do it on Kindle and I have a few on my iPad and that's so helpful, especially when you are at a point in your life where you're getting rid of everything you own (laughs) and you can only take a few books with you. But to have that book, I mean, there's something about that. I don't know if I'll ever give that up. I just love it. Special. And and in the era of the Kindle, I found riding the subway in New York City much less interesting because always before I'd look over people's shoulders and see what they're reading. It's now you nice. can't see the book cover. Well, not so much. Although the, the other day in the subway, I did see somebody reading a book that I had read recently, and I felt like, oh, we're, we're bonded. And she looked at me like, yeah, okay, you read this book. <laughs> And so you're, I would say, would you agree that you're most well known for your book, Main Street Vegan? In the vegan world, yes. Actually, my my biggest book that I've ever written is one called Creating a Charmed Life, which was was kind of an interesting story. My very first book was a vegan book called Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. That was actually my college thesis. I wrote that in 19... 81. It was serialized by the American Vegan Society for a while, but it became a book from a real publisher in 1985. And I have been told that that was the first book on vegan philosophy and practice ever to come from a publisher. So that really started me as a, a vegan author. And then I, I did um, a book called the Love Powered Diet, which has had three lifetimes and is living still, that was the history of my recovery from binge eating and my adoption of, of veganism. And then I did a little cooking kind of book, and then I thought, okay, what else can one say about animals and vegetables? And my degree was in comparative religions. I'm very interested in spirituality. And so I branched out into that area, and for many years, I was vegan and supported vegan causes, but in terms of my writing, I was doing spirituality and well-being. So uh, Creating a Charmed Life is a collection of 75 little essays about making life magical. And that one really hit um, over 250,000 copies, um, 31 foreign translations. So that's been my great big book. But Main Street Vegan, which came out in 2012, has become iconic for me in literally recreating my life. I was inspired to go back and do something else vegan, but there was something about the title, the way that that book came to be, 40 short chapters, a recipe at the end of each one, geared to people who are just beginning and maybe a little bit hesitant. Um, I actually had a really fun story about that book. The publisher didn't like the term Main Street, And so they'd already bought it. I had to write the book and come up with some kind of title. And my husband and I are walking up Broadway, and there is Michael Moore. Now, he had liked one of my earlier books, a weight loss book that I had written back in the early 2000s. And so I just gave my card to the woman who was with him, thinking she'll tell him hello. The next thing I know, he's coming up. Broadway behind us saying, Victoria. (laughs) And we started talking and he asked what I was working on. And I said, it's supposed to be called Main Street Vegan. The publisher doesn't like Main Street. He said, well, they're wrong. Let me talk to them. And it was in a three-way call with Michael Moore, my editor, and me that I got that title. 
And once the editor called to tell me that that was the title, everything started popping. A podcast, um, Main Street Vegan Academy, training vegan lifestyle coaches, the production company with a couple of films in the works. It was just as if I had come to this planet to do Main Street Vegan. And that's really my life as far ahead as I can see. I absolutely love it. What do you think of it is about that book that makes it so special because you've written other books on veganism and the vegan life and, and cookbooks and things like that. What, what do you think it is that makes it so special? Uh, besides the fact that it seems that you were put here on this planet as that, as a part of your purpose. You know, I, I think that's the, the big thing of my 12 books to date. I'm proud of all of them. I think they're all worthy reads. But of the 12, there are three that, as one of my readers said to me once about creating a charmed life, she said, I love all your books, but that charmed life, now that's a blessed book. And I feel that creating a charmed life, um, a weight loss book that, that I had written earlier called Fit From Within and Main Street Vegan are really blessed books. And I feel that, sure, I put the words together but the inspiration came very directly from some higher source that is not me. And some of my other books, I labored over and did the very best that I could do, but the best that I could do isn't even what that inspirational source can do on its worst day. Yeah, you were opened up to the channel, Yeah, right? You were, and that's what happens. It just flows right through you. Would you say it just flows right through you? I would say that. And writing isn't always like that. Very <laughs> often it's laborious. It's, it's a bit tedious. But somehow you can get into that. That looks like slipping into a gear. And once you're there, you're carried, at, at least for a while. It's pretty magical. That's really cool. I love that. And do you have like a... When you sit down to write, do you have like a ritual or a routine that you do? Like, do you, do you try and get, I mean, it's, it's so funny because we have these moments where literally a higher intelligence is flowing through us and we're able to create like, like you did with, with those books. Do you find that you try and recreate that space or do you have any kind of ritual that you do before you sit to write? I am a coffee shop writer. I know a lot of people like to be very alone. I read an article about a guy who wrote in his backyard shed, and he had a, an awning that came down and said, go away. But for me, it's very different. I've always felt that my words are recycled art and recycled nature. And so the beauty comes in, and it comes out as what I want to say. It's transformed. So... I like a lot of energy. I like a lot of, of people around. This is why I love New York City. When I first moved here, I was writing at a Starbucks at 86th and Columbus. And at that time, they had a large communal table with a hole in the middle and a surge protector in there. And it was really before people were using the internet. So there was more communication among people who were working there. And if somebody needed um, a synonym or something, <laughs> they would just call out across the table. Beautiful. What's a better word for beautiful? And it was cool. And one day I was there and looked out and the first thing I saw was a dog walker. Now I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. There are a few dog walkers there, but pretty much people have yards and walk their own dogs. So here was this dog walker with a dozen dogs and some were Great Danes and some were Chihuahuas. It was just such an interesting image. 
And not seconds after that, a guy rode down Columbus Avenue on a unicycle with a cup of coffee in one hand, talking on a cell phone in the other. And I thought, this is so New York. This is just perfect and fabulous and wonderful. So that's what I use to write. And these days, with the advent of, of, of the internet and all the online work between the social media and the tons of email that I think most of us who are involved in issues or who, who work for ourselves are subject to, I am so grateful for a program called Freedom <laughs> that you, you can purchase for very little, and you can take yourself off either social media or social media and email for anywhere from a minute to, I think it's five hours or maybe it's eight hours, several hours at a time. And I hate to admit that I'm such an unwill-powered person that I need help like that, but I really do, because I always feel, you know, good Catholic schoolgirl. If somebody has written to me and wants something, I'm supposed to respond to them right now. And the writing takes a back seat. So with that uh, freedom application, it helps me. <laughs> uh, you you got to do what it takes to get it done. And I love that you. everybody works in a different way, right? And so you're pulling the energy from the creativity that you're seeing within the individuals around you in that moment. And so I believe, and maybe you do as well because you, um, you're a spiritual person, that there are no mistakes about those people who are around us and that they're all serving a purpose. And I've started to get really curious about all the interactions that I have with people to say, you know, what is here for me within this connection? And maybe that's creativity for writing. Maybe that's something I need to learn. But I, if we looked around at what is around us, I think that, you know, life would be a little bit more colorful for many. Absolutely. And I'm all about color. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems that life is supposed to be interesting. And we are also supposed to color in some of those blank pages and turn them in at the end. So I know that when I turn mine in, it won't be perfect and it won't all be pretty, but it will be colorful. And so you've written all these books. You're going to go through rounds of edits and things like that. And when we create something that's close to our heart, you know, maybe one of our gifts that we're sharing for you, I would say that's, that's writing is one of them. How do you, I mean, at this point, maybe you're schooled at it, who knows, but what is your recipe for being able to take those edits in a way where it's like, okay, it's for the better of the book, it's for the better of the message, and it's not, this is attacking my writing. So, Well, books are very different from other kinds of writing. I started out as a magazine writer, and that is sort of like boot camp, because a magazine is an editor's book, so she wants to make it exactly the way she sees it. It's her vision, and all the writers, whether they're on staff or freelancers, are there to serve that vision. So if she hasn't communicated her vision well, or if I haven't understood that vision well, then we're going to have a lot of difficulties and conflicts and rewrites. I think of my daughter at the age of six, and someone said, so do you want to be a writer like your mommy? And she said, no, they make you do rewrites and they don't pay you for them. <laughs> so that's very much a thing that happens when you're writing for someone else's vision. 
Now, books are beautiful things in that they really are the author's vision, and the editor is there to support your vision. So I love working hand-in-glove with an editor. My only disappointment, really, with book editors ever was um, at one time when my book was not edited. The editor was going through a personal crisis and just put it on through. Now, in many cases, that would have been fine because I do believe that I turn in a publishable manuscript. But in that particular case, it was her title and her idea, and I was trying to get across what she wanted. And I knew when I turned it in that I had not done that, but I thought, not a problem because we'll work together now and I'll be able to redo this and it'll be stunning. But by the time I learned that she wasn't going to be editing, it was too late. So I consider it a collaboration. Yeah, and just receiving that feedback or whatever it may be, or lack of feedback as um, this is how it's supposed to be, right? And so looking at the book or whatever your passion is, and I'm really trying to take this topic and kind of spread it throughout life, you know, whatever that is, whether that's making dinner for your family, whatever it is to see it from underneath, but also see it from way up above, right? Kind of sandwiching it all in the middle and realizing that you can spread it all out to be for the good of all. Like we are here to serve a purpose, to share our gifts. And, and these are the kind of people that we like to bring on the show, people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. And it seems to me that you've found it and you're living it. And I'm sure you're discovering more and more things every day. But what I'd like to do is hear your story. Like, take us back. <laughs> How did we get here to the Main Street Vegan? Oh, my goodness. Well, you have to watch out with a question like that when you're talking to someone who's been around a while. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. My dad was a diet doctor, and my mom worked in what they used to call reducing salons, and I was a fat kid. So I was bad for business. I did have a wonderful influence in my life, a nanny who came to live with us when I was six months old. My parents didn't know that she was into all sorts of metaphysical things. She was the first person to tell me the word vegetarian. She was in Unity, which is a, a very liberal kind of, of Christian church. It was actually founded by vegetarians. And interestingly enough, it's the radio arm of that ministry that hosts my podcast now. And when they called to say, do you want to have a podcast? You can call it Main Street Vegan. It's about time we get back to our roots. It was so much getting back to roots because it was through them that I had first heard the V word many, many years ago. So um, as a child, I was always interested in more and bigger and what does it mean? My first spiritual experience was in my stroller. Didi, my nanny, had me out late at night presumably because my parents were having an argument. I don't really know why we'd be out in the dark of night, but I looked up at the stars and thought, that's home. I'm here now. There's nothing wrong with this. I'll do this, but it is not home. And I think that's really when I just made the complete decision <laughs> that I was going to stay here and, and have this adventure. So um, as a teenager, I got very interested in uh, the Beatles and the other rock groups of the era. I got myself a teen press card for a dollar, got into my first Beatles press conference at 14. 
When I was 17, Paul McCartney bought me a drink, and I thought, I can die now. I've lived a full life. What else could there be? But through these experiences, that even though I was not an attractive kid, even though I was nerdy, even though I was struggling with weight and overeating and, and all that, I knew that there was this magical thread through my life, and that if I could stay in touch with that, things would be really, really interesting, and that's proven to be the case. So I started reading yoga books when I was 17. There were three yoga books in the Kansas City Public Library. I read them all. And they all were very adamant that, of course, if you're going to be serious about yoga, you need to be vegetarian. But I had not managed to achieve that prior to. Then I went to London to go to fashion school and um, became vegetarian. Heard about veganism, but at the time it seemed extremely extreme. <laughs> Plus I was binging. And at the 7-Eleven in the middle of the night reading all those labels, it's like, oh, it's got whey, it's got egg albumin. What the heck, just buy it. Uh, so it took me a long time to go vegan, but with the very patient influence of Jay and Freya Dinshaw from the American Vegan Society. And I always love to give a shout out to American Vegan Society because a lot of newer vegans don't even know there is one. But interestingly enough, this incredible couple, Jay has passed away now, Freya is still alive. They're in Malaga, New Jersey, Phil near Philadelphia, if that's going to be on your travels. It is uh, going to be on our travels. <laughs> uh, they started the American Vegan Society in 1960, which was another era. I mean, 1960, that was the year John Kennedy was, I mean, it's just like 1960, vegan. And so they really were the only ones carrying the torch in this country for a very long time. So they were very supportive and, and stuck with me. And then I went to college late and got a fellowship for foreign study. And I could study anything as long as I left the U.S. to do it. So I went to the U.K. to study vegans because there were so few vegans in America that it would have been very, very difficult to do research like that. But in England, where it all started, and I also went to Scotland and, and Ireland, there were enough vegans in a small amount of space that I could actually do the research and, and do the paper, which became my first book. I, I got married and... Uh, had my daughter, and it was really looking at her in her little crib and knowing that I had to raise her vegan, but I was binging at the time, and so I needed to get over being an addict. So I went into serious recovery for food addiction, and as a result of having the power of choice about food, I was able to choose vegan full-time, all the time. And uh, that's been a great blessing. And I have raised my daughter vegan. And I don't know how much that we were saying at the beginning is actually on the podcast, but she's all grown up now. And she does work as a stunt performer. So no wimpy vegans. Um, I was widowed in my 30s and um, single mom for many years traveled the world, met amazing people with my daughter. So I think she's got a little bit of the charmed life gene as well. Remarried in 1997, moved to New York in 2000, which was a great big dream. Most people do it at 22. I did it at 50. It works anytime. And um, now I am literally a full-time vegan. My writing, my speaking, 
running the academy, everything that I do is to further this cause. Not long ago, I found a bucket list that I had made back in the early 90s. And interestingly enough, everything on that list had come to pass with the exception of the one that said, I want to make a significant difference for cows in my lifetime. And I don't really know why I said cows to the exclusion of other animals because I want to make a significant difference for whatever animals I can in my lifetime. I think it was because I was thinking about veganism and dairy. And at that moment, for whatever reason, cows seemed extra important. And that's the one. For as much time as I have left on this planet, it's about the cows and the pigs and the chickens and anybody else that I can help. Raising your daughter, raising her vegan, what was the experience like? Like, what were the, what was the feedback from surrounding people? Because I'm sure you had some sort of community there, and and I'm sure you were breaking barriers by raising her vegan. Like, what was that experience like? You know, it's so interesting when you're living your life. It's just the way you live it, and it doesn't seem like a revolutionary thing until you look back on it. So, for the most part, um, we didn't get too much flack. There were a few experiences. For example, when she was still an infant, we were living in Wheaton, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, very conservative town, and the newspaper got wind of our veganness, and they did an article in the paper. <laughs> well, the Department of Children and Family Services saw this, and they realized that a child was being raised without milk in the refrigerator. And they showed up one day unannounced, and they wanted to look in the refrigerator and make sure everything was on the up and up. And evidently, we passed because they never came back. Uh, another time, uh, I took her to an acupuncturist. And um, my daughter did have a lot of bronchitis a as a child. And I believe if I'd fed her milk, oh my goodness, I'm not even sure she would have made it through childhood because this is a genetic thing. It's, it's in my family. And I think it's important for vegans to be honest about the health stuff. I think that nutritionally, we really do have the best way of eating that there is. But this is still earth and bodies are still vulnerable. And I think that to imply that we have all had 100% perfect health from the minute we decided to be vegan is a setup and makes other people feel that if they don't have everything perfect, that they either have to hide it or they have to stop being vegan or something of that nature. So anyway, I took her to this acupuncturist and he burned her with moxa, that um, technique that they use. And he said to her, if you weren't on this restrictive diet, you wouldn't even have to be here. Well, I came very close to becoming nonviolent, uh, un, un nonviolent <laughs> with this man, um, because obviously, you know, it was my choice, not hers. She was a little girl. But really, other than that, it was never a problem. And she's always been very dedicated. I made it very clear that if she ever wanted to try some other foods that other people were eating or something like that, that she certainly had that right, that I had eaten those foods before I went vegan. But she would always look at me like, are you crazy? Why would I want to hurt an animal? What's wrong with you? And I remember once she went to Sunday school with a friend and I said, did they give you anything to eat? And she said, well, they had crackers, but the teacher wouldn't let me read the ingredients on the box. So I didn't have any. And it's very interesting. And now that she's an adult and married and, and all that, I'm very grateful that she has remained vegan 
And so many of my other values and my other ideas that I hold dear, she's like, okay, mom, that's your thing. I don't see the world that way at all, which is how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to produce clones, but I'm really glad she's kept the vegan. And it seems like she's made part of her lifestyle about that as far as not only the way that she eats, but what she's doing for the wildlife that's in the city here. Yeah, she is a co-founder of uh, Urban Utopia Wildlife, and they take care of orphaned, sick, and injured wild mammals in New York City. And so many people from other parts of the country would say, what, mammals, New York City, you know, you don't have any, but we really do. We have lots and lots of squirrels, quite a few possums, and a, a astounding number of, of possums really for such an urban area and also some bunnies and so uh, particularly in the spring and fall when it's baby season uh, she's very very busy and I really believe in vegan miracles I mean I talked about running into Michael Moore on the street how often does that happen well it happens when you need a vegan miracle and the same thing happened with my daughter and her husband when they were able to shop for a little condo that they would purchase. They looked and looked and looked, and they found one in Harlem with a backyard. Nobody in New York City has a backyard. I mean, there are billionaires in New York City, and they don't have a backyard. But they managed to find this building where they're on the main floor and they have the backyard with no idea that there was ever going to be any wildlife rehabbing going on. But it's sort of like, if you build it, we will come. And the fact that they had the space, people started calling and saying, I found the squirrel. So she took the training and, and got licensed. And now it's a, a beautiful service that she does. I love that so much. And it's just, when it's supposed to happen, it will be provided. And you don't always know what that is that's coming. They might have just been psyched that they scored a place with a yard. Yeah, they thought it was for their dogs and that they could have yeah. a garden. Well, their dogs use it. There is a garden, but yeah. <laughs> there's and also an urban utopia. And what we're, we're finding every day is that we think we have, like, it's such a joke at this point. We think we have a plan of what we're going to do, or, and it just keeps changing. Sometimes it changes and you feel that moment of resistance of, oh God, now like we're going on and now it's changing again, whatever that may be. But then when you take the next step down that path, it makes more sense. Mm. And you take the next step and it makes more sense. And it continues to reveal itself yes. to you along the way. Absolutely. I, I love that old phrase, um, man plans, God laughs. <laughs> and some 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot going on in the sort of new age slash spirituality world about envisioning precisely what you want and believing that you're going to create that with the power of your thoughts. And something never quite fit for me with that whole thing. And what I see it is now is that for me as a human with my human ego and my own desires, I can envision something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the right or the best, even for me, much less for the whole plan and the whole world. So certainly I set goals and do all the things that sensible people are supposed to do, but fully with this understanding that you're describing that there just might be some big old detour that is the coolest thing that ever happened. Yeah, it usually is. And that's the detachment from that final outcome. You know, you, you, you need to have goals. You need to have that carrot basically hanging there to, to, to keep moving you forward. But 
when you can detach from the outcome, then you really enjoy that journey and you can really soak up every experience. And I found, or we found like you remove time, you know, you kind of remove time constraints on things and you just keep pursuing Mm, your goals. Yes. We, who puts the time on, you know, is it something you saw or something you read or you're basing it on somebody else? Like just enjoy the journey and work towards your goal. Mm. Remove that time stamp and your journey will be so fruitful. And then you remove the stress, excuse me, because for me, how to create stress, have several things to do that you have to do by a certain time and stick them close together. Ah! (laughs) I mean, that really is the best way to become out of balance and upset, where if you can kind of get the time out of there, brilliant. Yeah, it's a, that's a big one is removing the time. And, um, Another big one that I I see, and you actually touched upon it too, is fear. And you touched upon it when you were talking about raising your daughter and how child and family services came over, really not because they wanted to get you, but because they were were fearing the well-being of your child, right? And so there's a fear that goes along with um, eating this way, eating a vegan diet, plant-based diet, whatever you want to call it. And... So the fear we find is those primary questions, and I'm going to pose them to you, is where do you get your protein? Where do you get your calcium? How you do know, you stay full? Yep. How do you stay full? So let's just start yeah. with, the, with the, the primary one that we all get. Where do you get your protein on, on a vegan diet? Sure. Well, the first thing with that question is always do not roll the eyes because we've all asked that question. That was the first question I had. I think it's the first question everybody has when they think about this because we've all been brainwashed with the same information. These days, I'm answering that question and I have to give uh, credit to Marty Davey, La Diva Dietitian. If anybody wants to look her up, she's quite the YouTube star. But uh, La Diva says that he who asks the question owns the conversation. So she will always say to people who ask that, where do you think I get it? Because obviously, if you're not flat in your back in a hospital, you're getting it somewhere. And that forces people to say, uh, uh, peanut butter, uh, uh, beans. And then you say, oh yeah, those are, those are great protein sources. But I see now that what you're really asking about is concentrated protein. Those are some great sources of concentrated protein, but actually protein is in everything. People are always so surprised to learn that dark leafy greens have more protein per calorie than beef. So protein is important and it's in every food that grows up out of the ground. It's not really a worry on a varied plant-based diet. And what about calcium and iron? Calcium is not calcium. But we were brought up to believe that it was. Obviously, a cow's milk has a lot of calcium because it's trying to grow a baby calf into a great big animal in a short amount of time. But that calcium came from the grass. It came from the green vegetables that the cow ate. So we can certainly get it from the same place as the cow. Now, this means eating a lot of greenery. I have big uh, salad bowls that come from a restaurant supply house. And in the summertime, when I'm doing a lot of raw, I know I'm getting plenty of calcium and lots of other things just from those salads. But the truth of the matter is, I am not a perfect only whole foods, nothing ever from a packaged person. 
I drink soy milk, almond milk, coconut milk, rice milk, oat milk from a bottle. And it has the exact calcium component of cow's milk. And in some cases, they actually put 50% more. So these days, if you're putting some of that milk on your cereal and in your latte and as a base for your cream soup and whatever else, you're getting the same amount of calcium that you would have gotten had you been using dairy milk. Iron also in the plant kingdom, quite um, generously in the plant kingdom. However, the non-heme iron, meaning the non-blood iron found in plants, is more difficult to assimilate. And some people, particularly some young women, need to be watching their iron levels. Now, interestingly enough, young women who are omnivores and young women who are vegans tend to have iron deficiency anemia at almost exactly the same rate. So there does seem to be something more genetic going on that some people are just able to um, absorb and retain that iron better. So if you're someone who does need to watch your iron, you'll want to do things like eating your leafy greens that have a lot of iron along with lemon juice or some other kind of vitamin C rich fruit that that enhances the absorption. You can also get yourself a wonderful cast iron skillet and a wonderful cast iron crock pot, Dutch oven. So this not only gives you something heavy to lift and that's good for your bones, <laughs> but it also some of that um, iron is going to come into the food, especially if you're cooking pasta sauce or, or something kind of acidic. Another great thing to do is to soak dried fruit drink the soaking water. It's like uh, an iron elixir. And also if you make smoothies, and I don't think I could live without smoothies. That's kind of my superfood base. I figure whatever else happens during the day, if I've had my fabulous smoothie in the morning all as well, but you can put in blackstrap molasses, which has so much calcium and iron that it's almost a supplement of, um, of those two minerals. And you have a chapter in the Main Street Vegan on budget, right? Mm -hmm. Like how to budget. What do you say to people that say it's too expensive? It's too expensive to eat healthy. And when I say healthy, I mean um, this vegan diet. So we get that a lot. Like it's I, I we can't I can't afford to eat like you guys eat. And so I'm assuming from that that they mean a vegan diet. They can't afford it. Well, there are many ways to eat, whether you're vegan or not. So I look at people in the conventional world, and there are people who are eating at Taco Bell and getting dented cans at Aldi, and they're not spending a lot on food. Then I look at people who eat, uh, I even hate to say this phrase, foie gras and Kobe beef, and on all these very, very expensive gourmet kinds of food, and they're spending a lot. So it's not really about being vegan or not being vegan, it's the choices that you make. So at the cheaper end of being vegan, we have the very basic foods, which interestingly enough, were the only foods available when I started as a vegan. It was how everybody ate. So you eat rice and you eat beans and you eat other whole grains and legumes. You get vegetables in season. You go to the farmer's market, which in New York City, you can spend more at the farmer's market than at the supermarket. But in a lot of places where you're actually getting the produce straight from the farmer, that's very reasonably priced. You can buy uh, your apples in bags instead of one at a time and, and you save a lot of money. And this is really a 
very, very inexpensive way to eat. And also remember that you're not buying certain things. You're not buying the animal products. And if you're trying to be more whole foods, you're not buying a lot of the snack foods and the junk foods and you save money that way. Now, certainly, you can spend a lot of money on food as a vegan. And I must admit that I spend quite a bit on my diet. It's just my husband and me, so there's a little bit more to spare than if we had, you know, a bunch of kids around. And it's funny, I learned this doing Main Street Vegan Academy because I, I prepare food some of the time for the academy, so that's 20 people. And I see the difference between organic blueberries and non-organic blueberries for a large crowd like that. And it's a huge difference. Now, berries and greens are on that dirty dozen list from the environmental working group. So we know that if you can possibly afford to buy anything organic, you want to buy those things organic. But the fact is, organic does add to the cost. Specialty foods, we have these fabulous vegan cheeses now. I mean, vegan cheese used to be so bad, it made Velveeta look good. But now we have cheese so good you could feed it to a French person. It does not come cheap. So this needs to be something that unless you're really, really rich, you have in little slivers and not great chunks. And some of the other things too, you know, we have ice cream and donuts and cinnamon rolls and all that. I'm so glad it's there so that nobody can say I could never be vegan because I couldn't give up whatever it is. But on the other hand, I'm grateful that those things are expensive because I don't want that to be the bulk of people's diets. I don't want it to be something like, oh, well, you know, a dozen of these fabulous vegan cinnamon rolls are $1.95. Well, they're not $1.95, thank goodness, so that we'll know that that's the kind of thing for a treat on occasion. Yeah, it exists. Wonderful. But basic food, fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, nuts and seeds from the bulk bin, it's a pretty cheap way to eat, and you save on medical bills later. Exactly, and pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And the majority of our nation is on not just one pharmaceutical, it's, it's a handful of pharmaceuticals. I loved what you spoke to earlier about how when we eat this way that there may be a feeling that we have to not get sick anymore and things like that, but stuff happens, that the human body is fragile. But what I can speak to is my own experience where I really can't remember the last time I came down with a cold or the flu. I can't remember the last time where I had that three o'clock dive in energy, you know, that I feel more sustained as a being moving through the world eating this way. And I look at it as we, we talk a lot about vibration here and that it is a higher vibration of food that you're putting in your body. And specifically, I'm talking about the whole foods, plant-based diet. We were just in Ithaca and there was, and I'm sure we could find it here because you just spoke to it. There was a co-op up there and there was vegan cupcakes, vegan cake, vegan donuts, vegan brownies. And we come from a very non Vegan, vegan friendly, friendly yeah, non-vegan friendly place. So that was never an option for us. We had to drive an hour to go to a vegan bakery. So we just never went. And I found that I had two vegan donuts in the two weeks we were there. I had Plus three were, vegan Plus they were conveniently cupcakes. positioned when you walked right in or when you, when, when you were leaving. They were right there by the entrance. And they look, every day you see them and you walk by them. But yeah, I mean, it's great to have as a treat. Once it's great to have as a treat, but just because you start eating a vegan diet, it doesn't mean that you're going to be super healthy. You can do it 
an unhealthy way. So it's really looking at those whole grains, whole foods, going to the bulk section, going to the farmer's market. And the fact that you're not buying the meat anymore, it's very, that's very, very expensive. And people who are still eating meat, the ones that want to be healthier or they want to be more compassionate to the animals or to the planet are eating quote unquote humane beef, which is not only very, very expensive, but there's a part of that humane beef title that's a little bit of a farce. And can you speak to that a little? Oh, sure. Um, I also want to talk about the pharmaceuticals, so don't let me get away from that. Yeah, humane meat is an oxymoron, a non sequitur, because, okay, if heaven forbid I were to be murdered, I would prefer to be murdered without being tortured, but the fact is I would be just as dead either way. And, and this so-called humane meat, which varies widely, some of the farms that do try to do it better do it a whole lot better, and the lives of those animals, while they are alive, are markedly better than in a factory farming situation. But many times they're not. There's very little regulation on that, and so many of the animals that are rescued and sent to sanctuaries don't come from these giant factory farms because those are regulated. They're horrible, but they do have to stay within the rules that are set for that industry. The often the country road so-called family farm, you can get people who are actually crazy. You can get animal hoarders that say, well, I have a family farm. And so we don't really know. But one thing we do know about the um, grass-fed beef is that even though that life is better for the, the cow or for the steer, it's worse for the environment because they actually put more greenhouse gases out into the world. So what I tell people is cut back. If you're not ready to go vegan, at least start eating less of anything from an animal. So you make a choice. You know, Meatless Monday is a tiny little thing, but when enough people do it, it does a lot. And as a lovely friend of mine, a very popular blog is, is Vegan Moe's. Uh, they just won a big award from Veg News, but uh, Dr. Ethan Cement and, and his uh, husband, Michael Suchman, um, do the Vegan Moe's blog. And Ethan went vegan first, and Michael said, okay, I'll do Meatless Monday. And he said then that became Tofu Tuesday and Vegetable Wednesday and Tempeh Thursday, and now they're both very adamant vegans. But something I wanted to say about the pharmaceuticals, it's wonderful that people can choose the kind of vegan they want to be, the kind of diet they want to eat, because just like people out in the omnivorous world are eating in all kinds of ways, we now have the choice to do that too. And I talked to people who just love all the vegan processed foods. I was with a young man in Chicago a couple of years ago who was saying, I don't understand why anybody has trouble going vegan. Because if I feel like having pepperoni pizza, I have a vegan pepperoni pizza. And if I feel like having chili cheesesteak, I will have a vegan chili cheesesteak. And he was going on with all these really rich kinds of foods. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if I ate like that, I wouldn't even get up tomorrow. And yet he's a very athletic, 22-year-old guy. And so he can do that for now. And he knows that there are people eating salads and smoothies and things. <laughs> and that option exists out there. But when the Vegan Society started in, in London back in 1944, 
they also were supporting the Nature Cure Clinic in London and building that up to be a school of natural therapeutics and so forth because they were so dedicated to the vegan ethic that they refused to take pharmaceuticals because most pharmaceuticals have some sort of slaughterhouse byproducts and they've all been tested on animals. So these people who wanted to be consistent vegans didn't want to support that industry. So in order to be consistent ourselves and also to be a decent example, and again, I get colds. I love it. You know, when I hear people say I haven't had a cold in 17 years, I think, oh gosh, let me sit in your aura and maybe catch that. I don't happen to have that, but I am 66 years of age. I'm on no pharmaceuticals whatsoever. Everybody in my family of origin, both sides, before they got to be the age that I am, was on medication for cholesterol, blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and all these kinds of very typical American complaints that people get. And by the grace of God and the good sense of this diet, that's not my situation today. And I need to let people know that. And that's why I tell people my age and all that, which is a dangerous thing to do in this society because you don't want people to know that you're over 50 because there's huge prejudice. If all the animals were taken care of and I didn't need to work for animals anymore, I would work against human trafficking and ageism because those are just two really important causes to me. But I'm doing the animal thing. But the fact is, it is important that I share two things that I would otherwise keep to myself. One is my age, because I'm doing well at my age. And one is that I used to be 65 pounds heavier. And for 32 years without dieting, I'm normal sized. And these are important things to share. So I think whatever we have that shows other people that this is an aspirational way of life, we need to be letting people know. We come across that um, in our messaging, we try to tie in um, triathlon. So we do um, swim, bike, and run. So we try to focus on helping our athletes use a plant-based diet to, to perform this way as well. So we are, we are doing long-distance events. Like we are out there training every day. We are doing uh, 10 to 15-hour, upwards of 17-hour events in one day. And we're training on a plant-based diet. And we do this day in and day out. And so this is the message we're trying to get across to people is um, you can be 66, you can be, we're in our early 40s. Like no matter where you are, a plant-based diet is going to help you thrive in your daily life, in what you do, what you're passionate about. And it just overall is going to make you feel better. So um, as performance coaches and, and yogis, um, we feel so compelled to share the message of being plant-based and we're trying to share the message of plant-based nutrition for all our athletes, yogis, and, and people we work with. Oh, it's wonderful. And one thing that I think people don't understand when they're first getting into this is that this is a double whammy. You're getting good health in two ways. First is you're getting all these incredible antioxidants, these wonderful substances that prevent disease from the fruits, the vegetables, even the spices. I mean, I've become a connoisseur of turmeric, ginger, clove, cinnamon. I mean, it's just wonderful. So that is coming in, but then also what is coming out 
about is the cholesterol, the saturated fat, the growth hormones, and all these terrible things that are in the meat, but on a more subtle level, and I, I have a book called The Good Karma Diet, because I really believe that that's what we're eating, we're also not harming and that really does come back. I know it's not the same as something like calories in, calories out, or, or something that you can measure in a laboratory. And yet, there is such a lightness that happens when you decide, even a day at a time, I'm not going to kill anybody today. Your whole life changes, your body changes. It's pretty spectacular. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, first of all, I'm sitting across from you and your skin is beautiful and your eyes are bright and your hair is healthy and your body is beautiful and you are 66 years old. And I know some folks that are 66 years old and they don't feel as vibrant and look as young as you do. And I, and I believe that what we put in our bodies has a lot to do with our energy levels, the energy that we put out into the world, and the way that our skin and our hair and our bodies feel. And so in the Good Karma Diet, you talk about how it slows down the aging process. And I remember for me when I was trying to sell myself on meditating every day, I believe it was, I think it's in the Yoga Sutras. Um, I've read a lot of Indian spirituality, and I believe it's in there. It could be in another one where it says, you know, meditation significantly slows down the aging process. And, I, and that was one of the things I was like, all right, then put that in the pro <laughs> list, put that in the, you know, at 44 years old and I'm not on drugs and I don't inject things into my face. And, um, but I have been out in the sun a lot. I'm an endurance athlete and, um, I didn't always eat so healthy. And, um, so I guess, can you speak to that about what you mean by how it can slow down the aging process? Because that could be a big win that could put somebody over the edge yeah. to eating this way. Yeah, it, it really could. I love the idea of meditation slowing down the aging process as well. One of my favorite studies was where they looked at people who had meditated regularly for five years or more versus non-meditators, and the meditators were 12 years younger physiologically. Now, that's a lot for, for just sitting quietly a couple of times a day. So I've actually put together a little acronym um, to help people live well and age slowly. Because what happens is it's not the process of aging. I just interviewed Pramoda Chitrabanhu, a wonderful Jain spiritual teacher, and I asked her about aging. And she said, well, I, I don't worry about that because I know that I'm not my body. And the nature of matter is to coalesce and then come apart. So why would I want to fight that? And I thought, isn't that beautiful? That is the nature of, of matter. And so we are going to age, and that's just what happens. But what happens, I believe, in our culture is we speed it up. And we're doing it so much more rapidly than we need to. And you can see that with people who have lived in ways that my grandmother would have said were dissipated, <laughs> a very old-fashioned word that she would use for people who drank a lot and you know, used drugs and stayed up late and other things. I call that kind of a country singer syndrome because you can look at certain people out in the public eye, um, musicians and, and others, who have really aged rapidly because of doing extra things, extracurricular activities that, that most people don't do. But what we can do to age at the proper rate and maybe even turn back and, and um, change some things 
that have already started to show up is what I call the MEND program. And that is M-E-N-D. M is for meditation, as you said. E for exercise. N for nourishment. And D for detoxification. And if you get that MEND program going for you at whatever your chronological age is, everything is going to change. So you go within, you touch this power, this eternal power, this ageless part of yourself. So for however long you do it, 20 minutes twice a day, you are not aging. Well, multiply 40 minutes a day times 365 days in a year. That's a lot, even if nothing were to happen beyond that. And then exercise, which of course you guys have um, in a way that I could never hope to have. I was a fat kid and I never liked recess. I always wanted to stay in and clean the chalkboards. So I've had to learn how to find some kind of exercise that I like in later life. So for my 65th birthday, I took up aerial yoga, love it to pieces. But even before I loved it, I had to go somewhere and I would go to the horrible treadmill and lift the awful weights. I actually created a disorder. I talk about this in in the Good Karma Diet. I call it Activity Resistance Disorder, or ARD. And I, I gave it initials so that maybe someday it could be an official disease and people could actually go to a practitioner, get help, and have insurance pay for that. But in all seriousness, To me, activity resistance disorder is related to depression. It's this idea of, I can't go out. I cannot move. I can't go to the gym. I can't put on my gym shoes. It's like a a lethargy that takes over certain people and makes it very, very hard to be active. And so I think it's really important that we all support one another, encourage one another, and get that movement going on. Nourishment is nutrition, certainly, but it's also nourishing ourselves with beauty and wonderful ideas and great relationships and even just putting your healthy food on a nice plate (laughs) instead of something that, that just doesn't nurture the spirit. And then detoxification is just not poisoning ourselves. I mean, most people have a toxic waste dump under their sink. And you take that stuff out and you get either the nice environmental cruelty-free stuff or you clean your house with white vinegar and club soda. It all works. And you just lighten the toxic load. And that's got to make you younger. I did. I took part in a detox in May, primarily because... When I was invited to do it, my initial thought was, you don't need to detox. You know, you barely drink, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, you eat whole foods, you eat... And so whenever my mind says, you don't need that, I say, okay, I'm in, let's sign up. So the great thing that I have to report is that for me, nothing changed, including the way I ate. I mean, I cut out um, soy. um, I noticed that there was added sugar in a lot of the things that, you know, I had been using, like different condiments and things like that. So a couple of things went, but I didn't go through any withdrawals. I still felt really good. But what I'm getting at is that the group, there's a wonderful group support system that went on with that experience and the physical pain that people were in from you know, getting rid of their toxic 
cosmetics and the stuff under their sink and even their clothing and changing their diet, the pains in their legs, the pains in their heads, the emotional um, turmoil that they were going through, getting all of that, what I feel clouds us and starting to open up to clarity. And there, like I said, there was a great amount of support to help those people get over the hump. And once they got to the other side and they could feel the vibrancy that comes in with a more clean, nourishing way to live was so beautiful. And so many of them have just not even gone back. For me, I detoxed from caffeine, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I didn't even think that it was something that affected me. And it was probably pretty mild. It was less than 24 hours. It was a headache. It was blurred vision. But I thought, I never want to put anything in my body ever again that when I take it away, that I'm impaired because I don't have it anymore. And so to look around your house and not only read the labels of the food that you're putting in the shopping cart, but also the products, because all of that is getting in as well. Um, and so you have the Main Street Vegan Academy, speaking of lifestyle changes. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it's just like asking a new mom to show baby pictures. I'm so proud of the Academy. When I knew that Main Street Vegan was my book title, just all kinds of ideas just started coming in from the universe. And the one that really had wings on it was Main Street Vegan Academy training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches. So I put the first academy out there into the world, not knowing if anybody would come. And miraculously, 13 amazing people <laughs> did come. And then we got a little help from the American Vegan Society for the next few courses. And ever since then, it's been up on its own. What Main Street Vegan Academy is, is a five and a half day miracle. And I, I use that term not to sound like a TV preacher looking for money, but seriously, that is what happens in the five and a half day program. People come from all over. We've had people from 16 countries now, and they're already vegan, and they have to read a lot of books and listen to podcast hours as preparation for, for coming to the course as well. And we certify them in a very intensive program to be vegan lifestyle coaches and educators who can go out and work one-on-one -on -one or with groups. Now, also, sometimes people take the course and they don't really want to be a one-on-one -on -one coach. They start businesses. I mean, some of our graduates' businesses include Riverdale Cheese in Brooklyn. I hope you'll get over there. <laughs> On Friday, Yay! we're interviewing Michaela. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, we also have... Um, Pleasantville Creamery in Toronto, a vegan ice cream uh, company. Bright Life Foods, just beginning here in New York. That's a yogurt company, yogurt and cheese. We also have Kat Mendenhall Boots in Dallas, vegan cowboy boots, custom gorgeous uh, cowboy boots. So people come and we have an incredible faculty. I know you've interviewed John Joseph. He's our celebrity inspirational speaker. And then we, we have a curriculum that has uh, at the bottom rung its vegan principles. So we make sure that everybody is conversant with vegan health, nutrition, animal rights and animal law, fashion and beauty, the environment. And then we have um, communication principles. 
So you know all this stuff, but how do you get it across, either to an audience or to an individual? So we have classes in public speaking, in coaching techniques, social media, and then we have business principles. Now, not everybody comes to the course who wants to put up their shingle and do something professionally. Many people just want to increase their, their vegan outreach. But for those who do want to do this as a business, we bring in people who can show them how to really turn their VLCE, Vegan Lifestyle Coach and Educator Certification, into something viable in the world. Now, I never promise anybody anything. This is five and a half days. You know, this is not getting a degree from Harvard. And yet, with an entrepreneurial spirit, you can go out there and do these incredible things. And I don't know the exact number of our 224 graduates who are doing vegan work full-time, but you know there, there are about a dozen who are, are full-time vegans at this point, which is pretty cool. And to even have something going on the side or, or to have more of a credential for getting out there in the world and speaking to people has proven very, very valuable. Then the other thing that we do that makes our program so special is that we have field trips because New York City is kind of Disneyland for vegans. So in addition to wonderful restaurants, um, we go to a raw food and detox market. We go to an Indian spice shop. We go to Mushu's, a vegan shoe store. We go to a vegan cosmetic shop. We go to Vote, Leanne Hilgart's wonderful um, clothing shop. She started as Vote Couture, um, winter coats, dress up winter coats for vegans, and now she has a full fashion line and did the first all cruelty-free New York City Fashion Week fashion show, and she's opened now her flagship store on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So we go to all these places, and people get inspired and motivated, and then we stay with them afterwards with um, a lot of um, contact through a private Facebook group and reunions. So anybody that wants to have more guidance going forward gets that. So as you can tell, I am incredibly excited <laughs> about the Academy. And I have to say one of the best things in my life is at the end of the week, people will come up to me and more than once they've said things like, other than having my children doing this is the best thing I've ever done. So that makes you feel good. So how does someone enroll or how, to, how when's the next program or how does someone get into this? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, everything is on the website, MainStreetVegan.net, and they can just go there and click on Academy and read all about it. Then they fill out an application. And if everything is, is clear there, um, very often they're accepted or, or we have a little phone conversation and then they're accepted. Pretty much the only thing that would prevent someone from being accepted would be if they're not completely vegan, because this is not a how to go vegan program. It's a how to help others go vegan and thrive as, as vegans program. And our next class in October of 2016 is full, um, but we have uh, April... Um, 2017. We're also doing one over Memorial Day and a couple more further on into 2017. We do four a year and they're small. 20 people is our absolute super max. 
We do the first three days in my home, which is kind of cool. People first walk in and they're like, wait a minute, somebody lives here and there's a dog. But they really love it. And I cook for them sometimes, and that's nice. Um, and then because my husband works from home, during the week we go to a, a conference space. And it's it's rich. It's really, really rich and full. And then as I find more fabulous instructors, we bring them on. So... Um, in the last class, I discovered Christopher Sebastian McJetters. I don't know if you've run into him. He's an intersectionality expert. And the stories that he tells, weaving in slavery and some of the other awful human rights abuses that have gone on throughout history and currently with what happens with animals, I just, I learned so much. And I've been around all this stuff you know, if we count my vegetarian times, it's more than 40 years, and I learn things I never knew before. So it's pretty wonderful. My greatest challenge is keeping it to five and a half days, because every time I find another great instructor, I want to add on a class. And I'm feeling that right now, because I feel like we could talk forever about fashion, about <laughs> all these different um, areas where we can bring more of this vibrance and cruelty-free experience into our lives. And it's such an adventure. That's one of my great kind of um, points that I like to make whenever I'm talking to people. The idea is that going vegan is giving a lot of stuff up. And I'll hear people say sometimes, oh boy, well, I'd really like to do that, but I couldn't do that. They think it's entering some sort of monastery, and yet it's opening the door to all this excitement. So you get all this new, interesting, different food. You might open up to your athletic self. I know so many people who went vegan and then discovered sports. The whole fashion thing. I mean, to me, going shopping for clothes now is so much fun because it's not just, okay, you need some clothes. It's like, all right, what kind of wonderful, vegan, cruelty-free designer can I support this week? It, it's just wonderful. It's such a happy, happy way of life. And I like the word too. I had uh, James McWilliams, uh, who, who wrote Just Food on my podcast a couple of years ago, and he said, vegan is a very hopeful word. It's a hopeful way of life, and it's a delightful way of life. It's so much fun. It's hard to believe anybody would want to do anything else. We say that all the time. I can't imagine eating any other way. I can't imagine living any other way. And it's a, pro it's a, it's a process. You know, when I first went vegan, I still had this vintage leather jacket that was just so cool. And I got to a point where I'd put it on and literally, ugh, it would just slither off me. And I'd try and put it on and then it would, and then I thought, I have to, I have to give this to somebody who can appreciate fashion, but I can't wear this because it's really cool. So anyway, I, I, you know, and it was a vintage jacket. I bought it at a thrift shop. It was, you know, and that was the reasoning. Well, the, it's, you know, it, I didn't buy it new and, but I just couldn't do it. So it's a process yes. and it's being forgiving of yourself along the way. If you make mistakes, if you spend the whole day eating vegan cinnamon buns, or if you binge on something with egg albumin in it, it's, it's okay. It's about moving into that next moment with a clean slate because every moment is 
a place to begin again. Absolutely. And it's not about personal purity. I think that so many people don't start because they think they have to reach some kind of perfection that nobody really reaches. So I always have when people are applying for the academy, they'll say, oh, gosh, you know, I I live in a hot climate. I'm coming to you in the winter. My coat is wool. Is that terrible? It's like, no, come be warm because it's it's about opening up to harmlessness. And I know that so many things enter in, and we've talked a lot about health and vitality, and that's also wonderful, and I'm so grateful that we have a way to be healthy. And yet for me, it's really, really an ethical stance. I had a funny experience yesterday. I had posted a picture of my husband at Farm Sanctuary, where I know you guys were just before we got there, and he was in a Jeep in one of the cow pastures, and this giant cow came and put her very large head in my husband's lap, closed her eyes so that he could pat her ears. It was a sweet, sweet picture. So I showed my dog walker, and he looked at this cow with closed eyes, you know, the head in my husband's lap, and he said, oh, is that a cow your husband shot? And I was so horrified because he knows, I thought, he knew he's been coming to us five days a week for two and a half years, that we're vegan. But what I came to understand as I've remembered things that he said is he has the idea that I am some kind of health person. And he'll always say to me, this health person was on Pinterest and this health person was on Periscope and you should do this. And I said to my husband, perhaps I need to eat a dozen donuts and smoke a pack of cigarettes in front of this man to show, no, it's not about health for me, at least not primarily. It's this wonderful ethical stance. And thank goodness I don't have to eat donuts or smoke cigarettes or do anything else that harms me either. But I feel like that's sort of the, the disconnect you see. That was the perfect example. They're walking. He's walking your dogs. So obviously he cares for animals. But the connection with the food or with what you stand for, um, he's not making that connection. And we talk a lot about zombies, like people are just walking through their day. We, I mean, you walk out in the street here and people are just doing what they do every day and they're not making that connection. I feel like that's the perfect example that you just explained. Like we run into that so many times and, and back to the meditation and back to being aware and being in tune with yourself. I think more people will, will realize it more and make that connection understand oh yeah she's just not health like i get it like she's she's more than that but i feel like a lot of people are still going through the motions and so we all need to just slow down a little bit right and i think to see our own disconnects too because back in the old days nobody really knew what vegans were and they just sort of left us alone they thought it was kind of a cult and like okay those people are doing something odd but now people have enough of an understanding that some people are afraid of the word or they'll say like oh vegans oh my gosh i know a vegan so i think it's really important that we not come across as we have seen the light because we have seen the light on one part of life. And I just pray every day, just show me my inconsistencies, because I know I have plenty of them. And to walk down the street feeling superior because I'm vegan would totally get rid of <laughs> the whole thing I'm trying to do. And I see other people, oh my gosh, there's so many people out there doing incredible things. I see a lot of this with my daughter in the wildlife rehab, because... 
she's the only vegan that I know doing wildlife rehab actively right now. I mean, I'm sure there are many others, but in my own personal circle, I kind of see the people that she works with and she's the only vegan. And just like you said about the dog walker, isn't that odd? And yet I know here, I'm so concerned about animals. And yet did I buy gym shoes that come from a country that has sweatshops? You know, there's Mm -hmm. nobody's perfect, but as we each try and lift one another up, we're going to change the world. And we're all on our own timeline. Right? And we even see that within our families. We're born into these families, and then everyone kind of moves on their own timeline. You know, to a point where you may look at your family at some point and say, oh my God, how am I even a family member with them? You know, <laughs> but it's we're all on our own journey. So, um, in closing, if there's a person out there and they're listening and they're, and they're feeling this, like, I, you know, because I, I, I believe that, and I know, I know because I've touched it. That the core of who we are is love and compassion and empathy. I know that. So somebody's listening to this and they're feeling that too. Like they're feeling what you had described as you were growing up, that there was that part of you that as long as I stay connected with that. So let's say they're feeling that, but you know, their, their plate is not representing that or the clothing or the way that they're living their life is not really in alignment with that, where, where do they start? Like they want to be healthy, but they just don't know how, or maybe they're like, they want to be healthy, but they don't believe in themselves that they can do it. Well, you start somewhere. What somebody told me in the very beginning was if this touches you anywhere, it touches you everywhere. I was at lunch not long ago with a friend who's an omnivore and she asked if her old college roommate could come along. So we were at a macrobiotic place that was most of the selections were vegan, but they also serve fish. And my friend was saying, isn't this wonderful? Because Victoria can get her vegan stuff and we can get whatever we want. And her former roommate said, well, I'm vegan. My friend said, you are? I didn't know you were vegan. And she said, well, I don't eat vegan, but my cosmetics and toiletries are vegan. Well, come to find out she sells Arbonne, beautiful vegan products. And I thought, isn't this interesting that we are so much the cool kids in certain circles, at least these days, that somebody would stretch the truth to be part of the club. So what's easy for you today? One of the suggestions that I give for going vegan is to do it just like the alcoholics in AA, which is a day at a time. They don't walk in there and say, okay, I'm taking the pledge. I'm never going to have another drink. It's like, I'm not drinking alcohol for this 24-hour period. So how about eating beautiful food from the plant kingdom for this 24-hour period? And that's renewable. So just see what you can do with today. And it's all growth and it's all progress. Uh, Perfection doesn't exist, but being committed, being convinced. And I guess the other thing I would say is get support. Get it online, get it in person, get it from books, get it from the wonderful documentary films that are out there so that you know that this is what you want And once it's what you want, then it'll be easy because it's always easy to get what we want. 
And definitely pick up the Main Street Vegan. Thank you. And so if people want to find out more about you, they can go to Main Street Vegan, your website. Yes. You're on Twitter, Facebook. Where's Where's the best place to get a hold of you? Uh, all those places. The website has everything. Uh, I'm Main Street Vegan on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if uh, they want to stop in. And uh, Victoria Moran NYC on YouTube for little inspirational clips. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's just been so beautiful to sit across from you and hear your words in person. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That is fully mutual, and what a pleasure to meet both of you and your wonderful dog, Clark. <laughs> Clark. We might have to start doing video because Clark is mentioned so often now on the podcast. We'll post a picture of him, too. Yes. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank, thank you. That was awesome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what a wonderful message. Wow. Clark, you Victoria Moran, author and dedicated animal ambassador. So do you just want to sign up for her academy or what? I know BJ and I were like, as soon as she left the hotel room, we were like checking out the academy and it's definitely on our list of things to do at some point. But we've got a few things on our list right now. Living Purpose, you guys, is multifaceted and multi-layered. So we got some really exciting things coming up. But don't miss the show notes for the episode because we link to all those amazing people who she mentions during the show who have completed her academy and are following their hearts. And just for the record, Kat Mendenhall vegan cowboy boots are awesome. And Riverdale cheese is so delicious. Look for our upcoming show with Michaela, Riverdale's founder and head cheesemaker. Just more examples of the diversity found in living our unique purposes. Sure, maybe the actual thing has been done before. I'm sure somebody has made cowboy boots before, but it hasn't been done by you. And that's what makes it authentic. And your people are waiting for you. Some of us are living our purpose now. We're doing it now. Some of us are on our way and others are shaking their heads saying, purpose, shmurpus. I have no idea what I love. No matter where you are, I find it is so important. I do this. I re-listen to these podcasts just like you guys do. And I listen so closely. It's so important to listen so closely to our guests and hear the passion in their voices when they talk about what they love. I promise you, there is a unique purpose for each one of us. And finding it starts with looking at the things in your life that make you feel joy. And I'm going to leave you with this last thing. When we partake in what makes us feel joyful, we are open to flow. And flow is what is going to carry us to our purpose, to unlocking our unique talents and eventually our greatest potential in this life. Thanks for tuning in today and keep tuning in every week. Let's keep the YTP full of life. Leave a review on iTunes, reach out on social, let us know you're listening and get your Android buddies on board. I can't wait until next week, but I'm just going to take my own advice from last week's show. Never rush your life. Instead, let's do this. Let's live in as many moments as possible, which is the first step to experiencing the high vibe.